It's been a year since we started our journey through the book of Daniel, and we are not quite finished, but we're getting close. And I was praying last year about this time about where we should go next. We'd finished Peter, and we were kind of between, and I just, with everything going on, felt like it was important to go to the book of Daniel. And if you recall, the first message from the book of Daniel was into exile. And what does it look like when we are entering into a period of exile? Well, at that time, if you had told me that we would be where we are today, a year later, I think all of us would have been shocked. And uh, not so sure what the near future holds, but we do know who holds the future. Amen. <laughs> and so, uh, as we look at this, again, we're, we're looking into the future, and so we're going to kind of march through here. I'm going to read through verse 3 of chapter 12. Uh, we may not get there this morning, and I'm trying to uh, <clears throat> be a little bit more open to the fact that we can, we can pause if, if time is short. Uh, but there's just so much to cover. So again, uh, we'll read these verses and then we'll spend a little time in it. But beginning at verse 36 of Daniel 11, <clears throat> it says, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain." At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these <clears throat> shall escape his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. <clears throat> he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. <clears throat> Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Going on into chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time and at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book of life. Sorry, in the book. <laughs> and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of the message today is The Advent of Antichrist. 
We have been looking at Advent, and we just came through the looking forward and expectation of the coming of Christ and lighting candles and preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ in a manger, remembering that that baby would grow to be a man who would pay for our sins on a cross, ascend to the Father, and promise to come once again. But there's also another Advent that the Scripture speaks of, and that Advent is one that will come who will falsely claim to be the Christ and who will take captive the whole world. In fact, he would deceive even the elect if the time is not cut short. The difficulty in this passage that we're dealing with is we spent a lot of time last time looking at the series of events that were chronicled by Daniel all through the book, uh, chapter 11, and it took us quite a while. Just such detail of prophecy of who would come next and what would happen. And we looked at all the different kings of Persia through Greece, even to Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epimenes, as he was known. He called himself the enlightened one, and everyone else called him the madman. But as we get out of that story of Epiphanes, there's not a clear break in the chapter. And so there's a lot of discussion. Is this still talking about Antiochus or someone else? But as you look, we kind of finish this point in verse 32. They, uh, sorry, uh, verse 29 going through, we, we have this situation where he causes great havoc on the promised land. Those that do wickedly against the covenant, he will corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. I'm convinced with others that now at this point we see a shift and we're going between this period of time to a future time that those of the people who understand shall instruct many yet for many days thou should, they shall fall by the sword and by flame by captivity and plundering and when they fall they shall be aided with a little help but many shall join them join with them by intrigue and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them purify them and make them white until the time of the end because it is for the appointed time. I think that we see in those verses a shift actually into that Maccabean period where those will stand up and rise up against uh, the tyrannies of Greece and many of them will die for a time and there'll be people that try to cut deals and all these things occur until really going all the way to the time of Christ. And then I see a shift. And in this shift what we see is this overlapping uh, prophecies really coming to fruition because we have had a prophecy of four great empires. If you recall, we had the prophecy that there'd be the empire of Babylon, followed by Persia, followed by Greece, followed by this terrible fourth beast that is not even describable. There's no animal in the animal kingdom that we can identify that would relate to this terrible, uh, ferocious beast. And there's a horn on that beast that speaks great blasphemies against God. And that horn and that picture is followed by a dream that focuses on the third beast and a little horn that rises up on the third beast that does terrible things to God's people. And then we have this prophecy of how long will it be, O Lord, and this picture of 490 years that we must suffer through, and then we get into the final vision. That is so significant that even as Daniel prays to understand, 21 days he fasts because there is such spiritual warfare against the revelation that the angel is held up, I think it is Gabriel, is held up by the prince of Persia, and he cannot reach Daniel without the aid of the archangel Michael. And with the aid of Michael, he is finally able to deliver the news that we're reading right now. We are surrounded by this incredible, spiritual, diabolical, um, holy event, everything that is going on. And you look at it and, and you say, well, wh why is it so important? And it could have just been that he's trying to encourage the people through this terrible time of Greece. But then we see that there'll be something worse than what happened under Greece. 
And we just read that this will go to a time that has never been seen before, even unto the end. And if you recall from the vision of that fourth beast, that at the end of that beast, when he is cast down, he is cast down by the appearance of God, <clears throat> God on his throne, who arrives in power and casts the beast into hell. Amen. And so I don't believe who we're talking about here is Antiochus anymore. I think we have shifted to the fourth beast. And so we have a cryptic king coming. The arrival of the cryptic king, what's important for us to remember in every chapter we have seen, as the, the horrible things are revealed to God's people, the terrible punishment, judgment, difficulty, suffering, sorrow, perseverance is called through. It's all encapsulated in God's, in God's knowledge, in God's will. And verse 36 tells us, right at the beginning of this, He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. None of this is a surprise to God. And in the midst of all the crazy stuff that we might see or that's coming and it's yet to come, I look around at the world today and it's hard to try to uh, not get dis <laughs> despondent and worried. I look at Europe and say, is that our six-month timeline? Are we just going to follow and subsequently do what they're doing? Uh, what is the future? I thought about entitling the sermon OSHA and the End of the World. Um, my son and I, we did actually count the letters of OSHA, and it did not actually add up to 666. So, so I think we're okay for, for the short time. All of that stuff gets us worked up and gets us nervous. And, and it's not necessarily nerve-wracking because uh, OSHA is the end or anything like that. It, it's a matter of what are we preparing for the future? And I was watching a John MacArthur interview, and he was asked, do you think that we're going to get out of this? He says, no, I don't. Uh, what we are moving into is a world ready for the Antichrist. And so it's not that any one thing you see right now is mark of the beast, this equals that. No, what we're doing is we are preparing for a time where people will be ready to accept what the Antichrist calls us to. And that's why, if you're having a sense of uneasiness, that's what it should be about. It, it's just, we, we know these days are coming. We know that some of these visions were so horrible that as soon as Daniel had the visions, he was sick for days. Even though God was in control, even though hope was at the end, it's just recognizing that hard times will come. And in the midst of these hard times, we have to always remember that God is the one holding time. That in the midst of the worst destruction that Israel ever suffered under Babylon, he had already put young men into the courtroom of the king. These young men excelled among all others, and they had the ear to Nebuchadnezzar. And before the end of chapter 3, what we find is that Daniel is in the court of the king, and the three boys that were with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are leading provinces of the area. And that every time the devil tries to squash them, they come out stronger and elevated higher. And so we have this continual pushback that God is always behind the scenes working things out for the good of his people. It doesn't mean that the hard times won't come. And when the Antichrist comes, who I think we are pictured here, he is going to be characterized by vain glory. What do we see? Verse 36 through 37, we're going to see that, that there's a character of this individual, and it's actually all the way through this section. But the character is one of power and one of might and one of self-exaltation. He will do according to his own will. Now, if you've been paying attention, we have seen that language before. In 
chapter 435. It is the pronouncement of Nebuchadnezzar that God, the Most High, is the one who does according to his will. But we also see that in the prophecies of Persia in chapter 8, that the Persian animal, the ram, was running about trampling everyone doing according to his will. And then there was a great powerful goat coming from uh, uh, the, the west. <clears throat> and it almost flew off the ground and it crushed the, the Persian ram and it was victorious. And it did according to its will. That was uh, said of Alexander the Great. And then we see Antiochus III, the father of Antiochus IV, who was not all that powerful, doing according to his will until he ran into Rome. And his son was uh, held captive in Rome until he was old enough to manipulate his way into power. Antiochus IV was not one to do according to his will. He actually was thwarted a number of times and then uh, dies of disease. But what we see of this individual is that he is able to do what he wants. He's very similar to that Alexander figure, that all-powerful figure, and that language ties us to someone who wants to be like God, because the only one that really does according to his will is God Almighty. But he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. What does that remind us of? It reminds us of Satan. It sure does, but it also reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar was doing? Look at all that I have done with my own hand. And he had been warned. And we had the dream, and Daniel said, oh, if it was but of someone else, king, but repent. Look after others. Put the other's needs before your own. You know, perhaps this could be withstalled. And it could not be withstalled because less than a year later, Nebuchadnezzar says the words that condemn him and put him in a state of, as an animal for seven years. But he comes out recognizing the power of God. This king does not. He reminds us a little more of Belshazzar, who has no humility in his heart. The king of kings, the god of gods, he elevates himself above all. <clears throat> he will speak blasphemies against the god of gods. If you notice the difference between the horn of Greece and the horn of that fourth beast, the horn of Greece is deceitful, he's manipulative, he gets into power, but the character that is known for blasphemy is the horn of the fourth beast. If we go back to chapter 7, what we'll see is the fourth beast and that horn spoke utter blasphemies. And even as it's being cast into destruction, it is still blaspheming God. This individual is known as a blasphemer of the God of gods. And he'll prosper for a time. He's also... power obsessed. We get to 38... He doesn't need the God of his fathers, for he shall worship a God of fortresses. He wants to elevate himself. And you can only elevate yourself so far until you want other people to acknowledge it. And then you've got to stretch out your hand and try to compel other people into compliance. Worship me. We saw this of Nebuchadnezzar. The statue that he saw that showed his own kingdom crumbling and he counteracts that vision by building his own statue, the whole thing of gold. And he calls everyone to bow down to his statue. And he even throws people into fire so that they will submit. But God intervenes. This individual is an individual who wants nothing more than self-exaltation and power. In the place of the gods that he rejects, he will, build God, or he will place a god of fortresses, which really most people believe that it's just going to, he's putting his own trust 
in military might. Not that there's a specific god of fortresses, not that he's worshiping Mars, but that he is building up military power. And he's going to put all of his effort into military power so that he can conquer all who are around. Of course, we have seen this before in human history. We've seen, again, Alexander, who grieves at the age of 29, having reached the end of the earth and having nothing to conquer, because he conquered it all. Well, someone is coming who will seek to conquer more and seek to control everything, and he builds military might. When you have no God, of course, might makes right. Part of the issue that we're having today is that in our schools and all over the world, we have rejected a God, a creator, a designer who made you special and actually gives dignity to all humans everywhere. And so the answer then is, if I'm bigger than you, then I set the rules. And we're, we're trying to say, well, that's not right, but based upon what? Eventually, someone will come to control, and that powerful person can set the rules according to their own standards. And that, of course, is what it means to make a God in your own image. He will act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And this is a strange verse. So he doesn't believe in a God. He lifts himself up over every God, but he puts his, his trust in might and power. And then he is powerful to overcome the world and the nations through the foreign God. But we don't know who this God is. Is this a real God or is it himself? Is he saying that he's a God? And we start seeing this strange thing occur. It reminds me of a C.S. Lewis book called The Last Battle. In The Last Battle, we actually have a great deceit being uh, brought upon the world as uh, a donkey is dressed up as a lion. And if you haven't read it, I'm sorry, you should have by now. <laughs> so, if it's a spoiler alert, you know. <laughs> but there's, there's a monkey that is uh, getting a donkey to dress up as a lion and pretend to be Aslan, the great god lion of Narnia. And he is uh, trying to convince everyone that uh, you need to do as I say. And of course, this <clears throat> dressed up donkey who knows he's not Aslan, uh, the monkey doesn't really believe in the god, but they're, they're doing this big ruse on everyone and to get stuff. And ultimately, the tyranny keeps growing and growing because they're getting everyone and they're, they're getting foreigners to come in and uh, kill the, the people of Narnia. And uh, eventually, the, the donkey is, uh, is set free, he escapes. And so the, the monkey says, well, the, the great lion is in this uh, barn that they've got. And they've got this big roof. Well, we want to see him. We want to talk to him. And he says, well, you just have to go inside. And they've tried to set up this great fearful thing where nobody actually dares to go inside. And then the monkey can just keep, keep relaying the, the false Aslan's decrees. Well, they do finally send some people inside. And they had someone ready to kill those that went inside. But what they found is that as someone went inside, they were confronted not by a military man, but by a powerful demonic force. And all of a sudden, the ruse that they were playing turned on them when they realized that there was a powerful demonic force that was guiding all the time. This is, I think, what we see here. There's going to be a man who thinks that he is God. He will declare himself God Almighty on earth, and he will have great victory. But eventually, this person will be overcome by the demonic force that actually controls them, and he will direct all of the power and the glory to this force. Who could this force be? Remember, the context of this is spiritual warfare. I'm not pulling this out of nowhere. This is so important that Michael the archangel and Gabriel have to team up. And remember that one passage that Gabriel says, and there was that time a few years ago where I had to go and come to Michael's aid. 
This is a powerful and dark uh, spiritual warfare that we're, we're, we're seeing what was trying to be kept secret. There was more that was kept secret, but we're seeing some secrets here. The vainglory, power-obsessed king. Diabolical deliverance and devotion. He advances the glory of this force and then demonstrates full dominance. Strongest fortresses of all. He will rule over the lands and he'll divide it as it's gained. Again, I don't know how far I'll get because I did want to focus a little bit on this. This God that he rejected and yet then gives glory to. What is going on with this? Again, it's hard not to bring in other passages, and we actually will bring in some other passages, but I wanted to go back to that horn typology. Why is there a little horn in Greece and a little horn in this fourth beast? And why are they so similar, and why are we warned in two specific dreams about them? And then how does it fit into this timeline? What we see is there's certain overlapping typology. They both appear at the end of time. We find out it's the end of the time of that empire for the little horn of Greece. That towards the end of that reign, this one will arise. And of course, Antiochus IV is going to lose control. Eventually, he'll die. They'll lose control of Palestine because the great and powerful West is rising. And when Antiochus brings his forces to the south and the ships of Kitham, it's, it's called the Roman ambassador comes and draws a circle and says, you'll leave Egypt alone and you'll agree to it before you leave the circle that I just put around you. And he leaves embarrassed and he takes out his hostility on the Holy Land. Rome put an end to the power of Greece. But then we have someone who's rising at the end of time again. And we find out in chapter 12 that again, that this is all about things that are coming at the very end. And so just as this little horn of Greece symbolized the end of that empire, the little horn of Rome will symbolize the end of things. We have making war on the saints. In fact, this is probably the most significant issue that we see. There's something about these individuals that drives them to attack God's people. And that this is such a terrible judgment upon God's people that when it really comes... When it really comes, it's going to be constrained by God himself. And we put time limits on it, right? This can't go longer than 2,300 days. Or this can't go longer than times, times, and half a time. That we're not going to allow this to go forward because it's so devastating to God's people that he will cut it short. We also see that they attack true worship. It says that the little beast of Greece, Antiochus, would try to attack truth itself that they'd put an end to the holy days, try to change the times and the days of worship. Uh, we know that Antiochus actually removed from the Holy of Holies the things that were sacred therein and put a picture, uh, or sorry, uh, on the altar he sacrificed a pig to Zeus to try to convert the whole worship over to Grecian worship. Sacrifice that resulted in sacrilege or is known as the abomination of desolation. We know that the coming Antichrist will do something even more sinister. There is also an external force. We find out that the little horn is going to excel. In verse 824, it talks about he will rise to power, but not by his own, his own power. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. That there's something pulling the strings behind Antiochus IV. That he's able to have victory and power and cause the destruction upon God's people by a different force. 
And then we find out in verse 36, sorry, verse 39, that in the midst of all of the victories that this individual we're talking about has, he ends up advancing knowledge and glory to this foreign God. And in that strength, he's able to cause rule over many and divide land for gain. Daniel has prepared us to see a correlation between these people. And also, we see that there's a correlation that anyone who fits this profile forward puts us on alert. So that we're never without concern when we start seeing people behave like the horns of Greece or the horn that is to come, that we're prepared to say we need to oppose this person because this person opposes God himself. There's some unique things. Again, the Grecian horn is known mostly as a deceiver. The horn in Daniel, the Antichrist, is not necessarily known as a deceiver. He seems to have so much power that he is able to conquer in strength. But we also know from other passages that he begins as a deceiver. That he's going to, by intrigue, uh, get a hold of power and control to begin with. We also find out that Satan is the father of what? Lies. And that through deceit, he's going to gain control. But it will come to a point where deceit's not necessary. What the Antichrist is best known for then is blasphemy. He cannot cease to blaspheme the name of God Almighty. What do we see about this figure? I wanted to turn for a moment to 2 Thessalonians. I had seen something in preparing that I had not seen before. And of course we're going to be talking about the same character here. 2 Thessalonians 5 says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Many of us believe that's the Holy Spirit. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. So if you didn't put the thing together yet, I'm sure you're already there. Who's behind this force? Who's behind the little horn of Greece? Who's behind this coming horn that, is, uh, that, that, that we're, we're terrified that's going to come, that's going to cause great harm to the saints such as the world has never seen? It is Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with the unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. He's coming. And we have known about his coming since 500 years before Christ was born. Something is restraining the individual. But this is the part I had never seen. <clears throat> For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasures in unrighteousness. The reason that the Antichrist won't really have to come with great deceit is because God will send a deluded spirit upon the lost to believe whatever he says. I was reading that and it just kind of went, my, my, my blood went cold. Because there's so much around that just seems so hard to know what's true, what's false. 
There's so many people willing to believe whatever this group says or whatever that group says. And then we have this uh, really intentional effort, I feel, being driven to turn people against one another so that we are prepared to really just have someone come in as the Savior, right? And they'll show us what we must do to believe. If we're preparing for the land of the Antichrist, I don't think, it, I don't think we're far. Again, we might be. I, I, I listen to a lot of different people, and I, I let, my favorite, because it makes me happy, is the post-millennial folks that say, what if this is early church history? What if in 5,000 years we're looking back and trying to study church history and say, I just can't keep Aquinas and Augustine straight. You know, they were just so close together. Of course, they were 1,000 years apart. But uh, <laughs> I would love that to be the case. And this is a little hill that we're going to get over and God's church, and we're going to uh, marching onward, right? Onward, Christian soldiers. And we're going to bring the world into subjection to our great king. That might happen. However, I come from a different camp that thinks it probably won't. <laughs> if we're close to that time, you know, it's interesting. I'm a little nervous about OSHA because it will, it will impact me. So the Supreme Court has heard. And they are deciding what to do. But basically, if the Supreme Court doesn't act tomorrow, every employer in the United States of America with 100 employees will force vaccinate their people under penalty of termination unless you have a medical or religious exemption, which is determined by the company. So that's troubling, right? Uh, because if we had said, hey, last January, put yourself, uh, last January, there is no vaccine. It doesn't exist, right? And we would say that within a year, the government was going to mandate under penalty of termination that you take this vaccine that doesn't even exist yet. What would you have said a year ago? And where do we find ourselves today? We find ourselves in camps today. Well, they should. They should force it. We've got to get out of this thing. We've got the other thing. No, no, no. Over my dead body, right? And, 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 and we, we are so torn apart over this. A year ago, we would have all been in agreement. Now, we don't think we should do that, right? Um, but we want to get out so bad, and our saviors have promised us. The thing is that you can quit your job. The Antichrist is more keen than this because he's not going to say your right to work is impeded by the mark of the beast. What he's going to say is your right to buy or sell will be impeded. So if you're independently wealthy, you can quit your job and you'll be just fine. That's not good enough for the Antichrist. When the Antichrist comes, he's going to make sure that you can't buy food. He's going to make sure that you can't sell anything so that you could buy food. How would you regulate such a thing? And I'm just going to say, the warning here, it's not about the vaccine, friends. It's about the ability to enforce that mark. And the way to do that, that I believe is upon us, is a digital, a digital passport of some kind that we could tie to your money. We are already seeing it in different places in the world. That's coming, and that should be resisted. But if God is going to allow this to happen, we won't be able to be very successful. It's going to come one way or another. So all of this stuff that, you know, again, none of that may happen. I know, oh, conspiracy. Let me get my tinfoil hat. I have it down here somewhere. Um, what do we do? Well, I think the answer is embedded in this passage. Those that are going to be deceived are not God's people. The delusion is going to fall on those who did not believe. God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. When we choose to reject the truth that we find in Scripture... We are putting ourselves on a path of rebellion, and God lets us go that way. 
and he hardens our heart, and he allows us to believe whatever lie the devil will tell. You, however, give thanks to God always, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. What do we do? We do what we've always done. We worship. We pray. We hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just for fun in preparation for this, I grew up with Jack Benimpi live. I don't know if you, if people are like, what? Just Google Jack Benimpi and you'll, you'll know why I'm so weird. Um, or so awesome. Perhaps awesome is the better word. Jack and Rexella, they had a show every week. And Jack's came to fame was the coming war with Russia. And, and, and he always knew how it was going to happen. And I don't think he's entirely wrong. But I watched a bunch of those trying to figure out, well, how did Jack see the world? Because it was very clear in those days. I do believe the war is coming with the Antichrist. It might be a long way off. It might be close. The important thing, the way that Jack always ended his show, if this is what's going to happen, what do you do? You have to believe the truth. And the truth is that God Almighty sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if you will accept the truth of Jesus Christ, if you will receive his death, his burial, his resurrection, all on your account, that you could stand before your heavenly Father and you could give him the sin and say, Lord, I've done these things, and he could say, it's been paid by my son. If you will accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you will submit your life to him as Lord, you will be saved. And then when all of this comes down, all of it is for naught because the time is very, very short. And when we get to chapter 12, verse 3, we'll see that the, the reward is forever. Amen. And so as we close today, we're going to come... I'll close with a song. If the band would head this way, this will be the time that if you do not know Jesus, it's time to get right with Christ. Amen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you're afraid of what we've talked about, it might be the Holy Spirit saying, you better get right. And so as we close with this song, if you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, I invite you to come forward. Pastor Jim is here. He's willing to pray for you. And then afterwards, we will celebrate in the fellowship of the table of Jesus Christ all of those that are his family. Please stand.